of the kingdom of God that is coming. We're getting a prelude of what we're going to look at in just a moment. I want to dismiss our children to Kids Church at this moment in the service. If you're three years to third grade and uh, want to go to Kids Church, then you guys, if you will meet Miss uh, Gloria or one of our team back there in the back, they will take you downstairs to our lower level for Kids Church. If you're in the house with me, I want to invite you to take your Bible and find your place in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to be at. Um, we have been singing songs this morning that talk about and remind us of the reign of God, the kingdom of God. It's sort of a prelude to uh, what is going to be uh, in the future, but also what we're going to be looking at and studying and learning uh, this morning as we move into this chapter nearing the end of this book. I don't know about you, but some people, when they are going to pick out a new book and, and select it to read, they will tend to go to the final few pages and kind of figure out what the story is and how it's going to end and determine whether or not they want to read it. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me to do that. It really kind of steals the thunder. It's almost like when you have people over at your house on a Saturday night and your team is playing on TV and you record it and, uh, at, you know, they leave and, and then you just get to see the end of the game. I, when, I, when that happens, I have no desire really to go back and watch the rest of the game because I know the outcome. So maybe you're that type of person, you're a little messed up in the head, but uh, we're not going to do that this morning. We've been working through all of this for a number of months now, and uh, we're nearing the end. This is this morning going to be message 34 in the book of Revelation. We started last September, and we will finish, Lord willing, on October 25th, just three weeks from now, we'll be finishing this. But, you know, we've titled this series, Get Ready. All throughout the book of Revelation, I believe the, the, the overarching message outside of God's sovereignty and God's goodness and God's salvation and, and justice, but there's also this overarching theme of readiness, being ready for the return of the Lord, ready for the end, ready for all that is coming in judgment against sin, so to be ready so that you're not under the judgment for your sin. And we're going to kind of finish up that way this morning as we move through this chapter. So we're bringing this book to an end, but really, as we do that, we're in a way bringing the book of the, the Bible, the narrative of the Bible to a close as well. You see, in the beginning of the Bible, God begins to tell us about himself, about ourselves, about creation, about what's wrong with the world, and we see this progressive revelation as God reveals more and more of those things, those aspects of life, those aspects of eternal life, showing us and helping us realize how that's uh, coming to fruition in Jesus, what he does for us, and then it's culminating in the return of Jesus and all of that all of what that means for us and for eternity. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of significance. And I want us to jump in this morning and talk about the millennium. There's a lot of discussion around this subject, around this topic uh, from the Bible. And I want us to look at what the Bible says about this and much, much else, many other things here in this chapter and, uh, that we're going to discuss. So let's read the text this morning. Revelation chapter 20. Let's read that and see what John has to tell us. And then I want to unpack it. I'll be honest, I'm probably going to do a little bit. I don't know what the difference between teaching and preaching is, but I hear preachers kind of differentiate between the two. I guess preaching is when you yell a lot and teaching is when you don't. So maybe I'm going to be more teacher than preacher this morning, but I want to walk through this pretty thoroughly. And uh, in fact, a certain aspect of this has always perplexed me for, you know, I guess throughout my time in ministry and 
And over the last few weeks, I feel like that I've come much more comfortable with where the Bible is and its teaching on the millennium and in certain aspects. And I'll share more about that in just a moment. But I'm excited about this and looking forward to it. And I hope you are as well. So join with me. Revelation chapter 20. Let's begin reading in verse 1. John says this, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had been deceived, or who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What we have here in Revelation chapter 20 is this teaching, this uh, explanation of what's coming after the return of Christ. Last week as we finished up chapter 19, we talked about and looked into what that coming is going to look like when Jesus returns, when he splits the sky and comes with the armies of heaven and brings his church with him and he comes in triumph, he comes in victory, he comes to put an end to, seer, to the tyranny of sin and to the beast and the false prophet. Now as we move into chapter 20, we see this millennial time, this thousand year reign time and what transpires after that. You know, as we think about the, the things that are written the things that are talked about, the things that are produced even in movies, in the Christian circles, most of it, or a lot of it I should say, I wouldn't say most, but uh, much of what is produced has the tendency to focus on this millennial aspect taught right here and presented here in chapter 20. Uh, it's interesting that we put such an enormous amount of emphasis on the millennial, 
reign of Christ, but the Bible doesn't do that. In fact, the only clear explanation of this millennial reign is found right here in Revelation chapter 20. You may see aspects of it or something that we could maybe look at and say this alludes to the millennial reign, but the clear teaching that mentions it and describes it is only found right here in Revelation chapter 20. And so the rest of the New Testament has somewhat little to say about it. Now, obviously, we're not going to say this morning that it's not important. Anything and everything that's in the Bible is important because we believe what Paul said to Timothy, that all Scripture is breathed by God, that it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, so that we, the men of God, the women of God, can be fully developed followers of Jesus Christ, that we may be mature in our faith. So everything is important. This is important, but it's not the main thing of what the Bible is seeking for us to know and to understand, and yet it is inspired Scripture and its visions that John has received that he's sharing with us. But we don't want to elevate it to to the level that it begins to supersede other main themes of the book of Revelation, like the return of Christ, like the final judgment, like the removal of all wickedness and the splendor of the eternal state that we're going to touch on as we land the plane this morning. We don't want to take the millennial kingdom and say, this is the end-all, be-all of what we're desiring and moving toward as believers, because even as it describes it, it is a temporary situation for the church It's not an eternal situation for the people of God. And so we don't want to take it out of the parameters for which God has placed it. Now, grammatically, if we read this, we can say here, I think we can make a pretty good argument that it might only apply to the martyrs who uh, have been killed during the tribulational period because that's sort of where the grammar walks and leads us in this particular passage. So we could actually restrain or restrict it down to it only applying to the martyrs who've been killed for the faith during this great tribulation. I personally don't uh, hold that view. I believe that it speaks of the, um, the, the, um, the, the all believers of all time reigning with Christ over the nations, though it's expressed here speaking of those who've been martyred and who've continued to hold on to the faith. But uh, taking it and putting it with other parts of Scripture, I believe it's indicative of all believers of all time reigning with the Lord over the nations during this millennial or thousand year, and we're going to talk about that in a little more detail in just a moment. You know, throughout this series, I, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, I've been reluctant to just lay out a timeline. That's always the thing. I remember uh, leading up to this series last year, I had people coming up and they're kind of expressing this idea of, man, I, I can't wait for you kind of to lay this out for us and, and tell us how it's all going to happen. I've not done that and purposely not done that because it's, I believe it's dangerous and difficult to lay out a, a scenario and say, this is exactly the way it's going to happen because the Bible doesn't lay it out like that for us. It speaks in symbolic language. It speaks in, obviously, it's apocalyptic type of language. And so for us to go there and say, this is definitively exactly how it's going to play out. People have been doing that for two millennia, and they're wrong thus far because they've been predicting the return of Jesus, and he is yet to come. So I've been reluctant to do that because I believe we need to be careful in our predictions and in our identifications with clarity on something that the Bible has not simply clarified. But with that said, I do want to present a rough timeline of how I see this this end times unfolding here in these final four chapters. And I say how I see it, not definitively, but 
the way I'm just reading it from a simple perspective, I think this is how we could understand it, not putting dates, not putting specific scenarios on it, but just saying, here's what the general teaching of Scripture is, what this is going to look like in the days ahead. Not saying this is the nation that's going to rise up or this is where they're going to come from, none of that stuff. Just saying, here's what the Bible says, the general pieces of the, the, the puzzle and what it's going to look like. So let me just kind of walk through this real quickly, and then I want to come back and give you three, talk about three events we see in this chapter, and then bring some, some application for us in our own lives today. So here's where we've been so far. This is why I told you we're going to do a little bit more teaching than preaching. So, so far, we've been working through the first 19 chapters. We've went through the seals, right? We've went through the trumpet bowls, we've went through or the trumpets, and then the bowls. And I've told you that, uh, from my perspective, in some way, at least the trumpets and the bowls seem to be more of a recapitulation and a, a retelling of, uh, in, in a different way, the types of judgments that will come upon sinful humanity. Um, the seals are more of things that are happening leading up to the tribulation. And then in that tribulation, the trumpets and bowls, I believe, sort of work together. But we've seen this period of judgment coming upon sinful man. And much of the reason for that is to bring them to a place of brokenness, faith, and repentance. Some have repented. Many have not. Many have perished uh, under the judging hand of God. And so we've come through all that. On the back end of that, as the bowls are culminating, there is going to be this empire, this human empire that the Bible identifies as Babylon. Many commentators would say that the, the people that John is giving the revelation to, the first hearers of this, would have equated it to the empire of Rome. Uh, both are very similar in their idolatry, in their pagan worship, in their um, lust and sinfulness and, and just human depravity. But there will be this worldwide empire that deceives the nations into rebellion against God. And then as a judgment against that empire that we've seen, uh, the vassal kings that will come to the allegiance of the beast will turn on this empire and destroy it in civil war. We've talked about that in the last few weeks. And so those kings and the leaders that were loyal and are loyal to the Antichrist will gather to war against God's people after that, and that will be a battle that we know in Scripture to be Arm, Armageddon. In that moment, Jesus, I believe, will appear in the sky. He will come with the armies of heaven like we talked about last Sunday. He's going to call it his church, and they together will battle against the forces of evil. And we saw there in chapter 19 that in that battle, they're going to be destroyed. God's going to take the uh, false prophet. He's going to take the antichrist, the beast, and the, and, and the second beast, and he's going to cast them into the lake of fire. And there they will be punished forever and ever. And also the kings and the armies that have rallied to the antichrist and are warring against God and his people will be destroyed in that moment. Next, what we see is the dragon. Here as we move into chapter 20, the dragon, or better known as Satan, is going to be bound and imprisoned in the abyss for 1,000 years. So the false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown into the lake of fire, but here in chapter 20, on the heels of that, it's really a continuation of the, of, of the events that's taking place in chapter 19, the dragon, or Satan, will be seized and thrown into the abyss. And he will be there for 1,000 years, or what we call a millennial, a millennium. During this time, believers are going to be rewarded. They're going to reign with Christ in the beloved city, as described here. 
During this time, all the unredeemed of the earth who are still alive, who didn't die at Armageddon, who weren't a part of those armies, will give allegiance to Jesus as king. And then after that millennial period, Satan will be unleashed, he will be released, uh, unleashed and released to deceive the nations. Those unredeemed will quickly coalesce behind him and he will lead them in a rebellious uh, war against Jesus. They will come up, as we just read, and seek to attack the camp of the saints, the beloved city as John describes it. And as they move upon that city, God's going to rain fire down from heaven and destroy all of them, the unredeemed of the earth. Satan will then be cast into the lake of fire and punished for all of eternity. And on the heels of that, the final judgment will commence. We see that creation, which has been corrupted by sin, is going to flee from the presence of God. Sinners will be resurrected and appear before the great right throne for sentencing. They will be judged by their deeds recorded in those books, ultimately being judged by the fact that their name is not in one of the books called the book of life. And so uh, after that, The last items to face judgment will be death and Hades. They will be cast into the lake of fire with the rest of the evil and with the devil himself. And then all of those who are not, whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life will also be cast into the lake of fire. And then finally, God will create a new heaven and a new earth as we move into chapter 21. We'll look at that. Lord willing, next Sunday. So that's a quick timeline of what's going to be transpiring as we move into the future through these four chapters that finalize the revelation. So with that in mind, let me give you three events that we see here, talk a little bit more in detail on them because I know I raced through that timeline. So I want to come back and unpack that for us and then bring some application for us. Everybody with me so far? Y'all brought your lunch? Not that we're going to be here a long time, but it's, it may be a little somewhat deep this morning uh, but I think it's, it's something that we all want to know, right? Everybody wants to know how the end's going to be. That's why we read the end of the story. That's why you, you, I don't read the end of the story, but when I'm buying a new book, I flip it over to the back of the cover, and I want to know at least a, a, a basic outline of what this story is going to be about, what I should be expecting. We have that desire. That's why we're so interested in what this chapter has to tell us. And so let's look at these three events uh, quickly, and then I'll bring some application. Number one, the first event we see here is... What we see in the first few, ch- few verses, the millennial reign. The millennial reign. On the heels of the Antichrist's defeat there at Armageddon and the casting of the false prophet into the lake of fire, both of them, Satan is arrested. Isn't that good news that that old stinker is going to be thrown into the lake of fire at some point? That ought to give you... Uh, just a sense of self-assurance that God is in control. And so he's going to be arrested. And I say arrested because that's the language that John uses here. This angel descends from heaven. It's the same angel that I believe in chapter 9 who descends from heaven with the key to open the abyss, right? As those judgments were being poured out, he opens the, the gate or the, the, uh, the lid to the abyss, and those demons were allowed to come out. And so that lid's been open throughout this whole time as judgment's been taking place. That's why there's such demonic activity during these judgment periods is because God is bringing judgment upon humanity through the ones that they worship and give their allegiance to. And so that lid has been open until now. The angel descends with a chain and with the key to the pit. He grabs Satan, he binds him, and he throws him into the pit. He shuts it and locks it. So we get all kinds of imagery here telling us that the Lord is in control and that the devil will not be able to escape. 
there's a lot of jails that seem to be impenetrable. You know, you can't get in, you can't get out. But there's always someone that figures out how to do it, right? The guy that figured out how to get out of Alcatraz and swim across the, the bay there in San Francisco. He was able to get out. I don't know the story other than what I watched in a movie with Charleston, not Charleston, Heston, it was Clint Eastwood, I think, a long, long time ago, the story of Alcatraz. But we build these prisons, and we think no one's ever going to get out of them, and then no one can until the first person does. Here's a prison that Satan's going to be bound in for, the Bible tells us, a thousand years, and he will not be able able to escape. So we see here the power of God set over and against the powerlessness of Satan. Now we say all the time that our enemy is a, is a formidable foe. He's powerful, he's dangerous, and he is to you and I. You know, Peter tells us that he is a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. And if it's just you and I going against him, we're, we're, we're tomorrow's lunch, right? We're, we're no match for him. But when it comes to the power of God, when it comes to his angels in heaven who are empowered by the Lord, we see here that this angel comes and seizes him. It's almost like that little dog that keeps nipping at your heels, and all of a sudden you just reach down and grab him by the back of the neck and pick him up and hold him up. That's what the angel's doing here. He just reaches down there and seizes with force the devil and throws him into the lake of fire. He's bound and he's cast aside. He is dangerous, but in the face of God, he is powerless. And so he's going to be bound, he's going to be imprisoned in the abyss for what the Bible says 1,000 years. Now, I believe we should understand this as a symbolic number, not as a literal number. Uh, many wouldn't disagree with me. They would take it as literal. But I take it as symbolic because we have looked at other numbers in the Revelation, and we've also taken them symbolic. For instance, in chapter 7, when it talks about the 144,000 of Israel, and it lists them from tribes and Weeks ago, we talked through all this, and I explained why I believe it's symbolic. I believe it's representing what is said in the next passage in chapter 7, verse 9, that it's the multitudes that have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, people of all time, from all places and all peoples who are part of the people of God. And so that number is symbolic. Other things we've looked at is symbolically. And so I believe this is representing a large amount of time and yet a temporal amount of time where the devil will be bound and gagged in the abyss. And the purpose for that, John tells us, is to ensure that he no longer deceives the nations, verse 3. Deception is his primary method. You know, we talk about him being dangerous, and he is dangerous, but he's most dangerous because he's very deceptive, right? He comes and whispers in your ear and say, man, if you just did that, if you went and, get, went and bought that, or if you pursued that, or if you stole that, or you killed that, or whatever it is he tries to get you to do, it's a whisper in your ear to entice you. You see, in the garden, he didn't come up to Adam and Eve very rough and cr crude and, and just trying to lord over them. He came up just kind of casually and, and softly whispering, did God really say, have you considered, and just whispering these little thoughts in people's heads and leads them into deception. That's what he does to people all times and all places. That's what he's going to do in the end. He leads people into deception. He's done it all the way through this revelation, through the counterfeit miracles of the false prophet. The nations were deceived there in chapter 13. And so during the millennium, he will not be able to deceive humanity any longer because he's going to be bound and perhaps even gagged there in the abyss. No one's going to be able to hear from him. He's going to have no one's ear during that time. And so here a major question arises concerning 
who he might deceive. See, one of the questions I've always wondered about as I've heard this taught, preached, read about it over the years is, who are these people who are going to be deceived? Because the Bible tells us here that Satan will be bound for a time and then later released because he must, what does it say here in verse 3? After that, he must be released for a little while. The idea here, the impression is, is that he's going to be gagged for a period of time, but there's going to be another time coming in the future where he's able to get out and do what he does, and that's deceive people. So who are those who will be deceived? Will they be believers? Will they be the church? Are they the ones who are sealed with the, with the seal of God on their heads? And if so, how can they be deceived? Because that's really an idea of losing one's salvation. And we, we believe the Bible teaches an eternal security message. So how could that possibly be the case? Well, let me just kind of rest your, um, your minds this morning by saying I don't believe this verse, verse 3, teaches that believers will be deceived. And I don't believe that's what it's referring to. Instead, I believe it signifies there will be a number of human beings who do survive the return of Christ. And here's that one aspect that I've kind of been alluding to the last few Sundays that I've never really heard a lot of people touch on right? I don't know if you've ever heard people touch on this. They talk about Jesus returning. They talk about the church reigning. They talk about all the blessings of all of that. And then they might touch a little bit on the deception that the devil's going to do, but they've never really, and from my perspective, the people I've said under or been around or read, dealt with in detail who is going to be deceived. And if it's not the church, then who could it be? It has to be people who survive Armageddon, who are alive during this millennial reign as the people of God are in the city of God, then there's these human beings who survived it all, who are giving allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ as king from their lips, but their hearts are not with him. So they're going to be alive during this time, and when the devil is released, then he has pliable hearts, pliable minds to to deception and who will rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to destroy his people. So I believe that's what John here is describing for us. Now the believers, those who persevered in who have persevered in faith, both Old Testament, New Testament, uh, the age that we're living in, the age of the church, and during the tribulation, I believe they will be present on earth during the millennial. It's not going to be those martyrs that I said it, the text could speak of. I believe it's the whole church. And during this time, they're going to be rewarded for their faithfulness. I believe this is where the church will, the, the people of God will be rewarded. They will reign with the Lord Jesus. And part of that reign, verse 4 tells us, is that they're going to give a, be given authority to judge, to govern the nations. One of the beautiful purposes of the millennium will be the further vindication of the saints, the exaltation of the saints. Those who have continued to be faithful to God, God will be faithful to and reward in the millennial reign of Christ. And so the Bible tells us here they're going to be priests of God. They're going to share in this priestly status of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then all sinners who died without Christ will remain dead and await the second resurrection to come. That's during this millennial reign. Their souls, I believe the Bible teaches, are in hell. They're in a place of torment today. They're in a place of separation from God today. And they're awaiting what we see at the end of chapter 20 in this second death, this final judgment being cast into the lake of fire. And so this brings us to this next event. Let's talk about the final rebellion. I've already alluded to it a little bit. So Satan is bound for the thousand years. Um, 
The fact that this period is given indicates there's going to be a time of his release. But that shouldn't alarm us. That shouldn't uh, cause us to, 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 to wonder about that. We know God is in control. We know that a parole date is coming for this dragon. Uh, the release can be troubling, but we remember that it fits God's divine plan. Uh, I'll be honest, when I read through this, in my finiteness, and in your finiteness, you're probably thinking something similar. You're thinking, God, why can't you just broad, broach, broad brush stroke it and be done with the whole thing? Why all the judgments? Why all the different aspects? Why these different seasons and epics and, and, and ways of going about the judgment? Why not just be like, it's over and done with? I don't know. But in God's sovereign will, and God's providence, this is the way he's doing it for his glory and for the good and the vindication of his people. So he's upholding justice and bringing vindication to the saints. Upon the release, as I said a few minutes ago, Satan will quickly resume doing what his, is his nature. And what is the nature of, of Satan? He's a deceiver. He's a liar. What did Jesus call him? The father of lies, right? That's what he does. As he's whispering lies in your ears, he's deceiving you. And so he comes out with that purpose, to deceive the nations, to lead them into another rebellion against God. And he finds these hearts that are pliable, these minds from the four corners of the earth. And so that speaks of the universality of those who are alive and present on the earth during that day who have not given heart allegiance to the Lord Jesus. They will coalesce around him, and they will march upon the city of God, the people of God there. Uh, the nations here are identified as Gog and Magog. It's a reference back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you're reading with us through the Bible, this morning our reading was in Ezekiel 38. So it's a reference to that and the Old Testament picture of what that's going to look like there. They're symbolic figures representing the nations of the world, how they band together for this final assault upon God and his people. The nations, as well as the dragon, march upon the camp of the saints. What happens in the text next? Look at what happens. It reminds you of what took place with Elijah. Remember, in, what is it, 1 Kings or 2 Kings chapter, yeah, 2 Kings chapter 1 there in verses 10 and 12. You've got these two groups of 50 who are sent to Elijah to, to bring him back to the king, and he calls fire down from heaven and just incinerates them right there on the, on the slope of the mountain. That's sort of the picture of what's going to happen here, but a much grander scale. They're marching against the kingdom of God, the people of God there, and fire falls from heaven and absolutely destroys them, much like it destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And so all the sinful humans alive on earth at that point are killed because they have get banded together as one people coming against the Lord, and they are destroyed. That's that final rebellion. So it is over now that brings us to this third event, the great white throne. The, vi the final event in history will be this judgment dispensed from God as he sits on the white throne. The whiteness and the greatness of this throne speaks of its majesty. It speaks of its purity. It speaks of holiness. We would accept or, or expect nothing less from God in his presence sitting on the throne. The imagery builds upon the Ancient of Days portrayal there in Daniel chapter 7. We sing about the Ancient of Days this morning. So this great white throne judgment is an event that once and for all establishes the justice of God in order for a new age to begin. Here's what's happening here. God sets on his great white throne, and the first thing to be judged is not humans. Did you catch that? It's creation. 
It says the heavens or the earth and the skies flee. They flee from the presence of God, and they're unable to find a place suitable for them, a place of rest. So the idea here is, is that because creation has been corrupted, there can be no new, new earth, new heavens, until the first has been judged and put aside. And so they flee, finding no place to rest, speaking of their judgment. It sets up what we'll see next week in Revelation chapter 21 as he creates a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 51. Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 8. This corruption or decay holds creation in bondage and it must be destroyed for there to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's very possible also in this that all people stand before the judgment seat of God. I told you earlier that I believe the church will be rewarded on the front end of the millennial kingdom as part of their reigning and ruling with Jesus. But the language could also lend us to believe that 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 rewarding or judgments could come at this point. I tend to believe it's at the first point. But we do know without question that those sinners, the, the ones who've been in hell who've been awaiting this second resurrection, which is uh, moving them to a second death, is going to take place. They will face the judgment of God. They will be rewarded based upon their deeds in this life and ultimately will be judged because they have rejected the Lord Jesus and their names have not been written in the book of life. That, those two things is what's taking place at the great white throne. The, the last couple things that are happening here is that death in Hades will be judged. They will be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, they symbolize the personification of evil. I don't know about you, but there's, I, I long for the day that there's no longer going to be a funeral. I'll do a funeral tomorrow for one of our uh, dear senior adult men who passed away uh, late last week. And so I'll stand with them tomorrow in this funeral. Many of you probably will be here for this funeral. We'll go to the graveside. We'll do all that. And, and, and as we go through this ceremony, as we celebrate his life, as we celebrate the Lord Jesus and what he's done in this man's life, we also think at the same time that there's going to be a moment we don't have to do this anymore. Even in the millennial reign, I tend to believe that there will be death, the death of those who are living a normal life outside the city of God because death still exists, right? It has not yet been cast into the lake of fire. But at this moment, at the great white throne, as we will for all time, forever, for all of eternity, stand and be in the presence of God, death will never, ever again touch the creation of God. That's a good thing. I mean, we face sickness all the time. Our president, many in Washington today have come down with coronavirus this past week. They're battling that. There's others across the world. I mean, you don't cough. I've had a chest cold for the last few days. I, I dare not cough in here because some, some of you think he's got coronavirus. He's infecting all of us. I, I know that's what's going through your head. I know that. You don't go into a grocery store and cough. I mean, you hold it until you get outside, shut the doors, roll the windows up in your car, and you cough your head off because you don't dare want to give somebody the impression that they're going to die because you were 40 feet from them. We're scared to death of death. But there's going to be a day that no longer will fear, cause fear in our lives. It will be done away with. Every aspect of evil will be cast into the lake of fire, even sinners who've rejected Jesus. And so we find these three, event, these three events here in Revelation 20, and they usher in this rewarding of God's people, his final judgment also upon sinners. So I want to draw four realities from this. I've got to do it really, really quick. Man, y'all didn't listen very fast this morning. It is absolutely your fault. 
So let me give you these four realities of the millennium and, and maybe try to draw some application here from these. Number one, the judging of the rebellious upholds the justice of God. I feel like we're saying this every single week because I believe it's a real important theme in Revelation. We're seeing that, that what God is trying to teach us here is that he is just. And he is just because he holds sin accountable. And he holds sinners accountable. Throughout history, God has mercifully, think about this, and graciously provided opportunities for sinful humanity to repent of sin and to turn in faith to him. Even in judgment, there's always been an evangelistic appeal to sinners. We've seen that as we've walked through these judgment cycles in Revelation. There's always a, a, an element, a, a, an aspect of, hey, come, embrace, turn from sin, come to Jesus, get out of the punishment. You don't have to go this way. There's always that sort of appeal. But by and large, humanity rejected his call to repentance and faith. So the judgments of Revelation also resulted in the majority of man rejecting God and warring against his church. Those who were forced to experience the reign of Christ in this millennial time, they will also reject the Lord. And so we see a theme of theodicy or the vindication of God's divine goodness and his providence in view of the existence of evil. It's this battle between good and evil here that's taking place. And so it's culminating. And what we're learning is that God justly, God fairly gives sinners what they deserve. Here's the kicker, and what they desire. You see, the, the people who will be in the lake of fire, they want to be there because they hate God so much they would rather exist for all of eternity in eternal torment than bow their knees, turn from their sin, and give allegiance to their rightful king. God's justice is upheld in the judgment. Second reality, eternal punishment is justified by man's total and eternal depravity. You say, what in the world does all that mean? Here's the idea. What we see here is an everlasting punishment, and that idea of it being everlasting may, may kind of strike us as, as a little too extreme. We, we, when we think about that, we need to weigh it over and against the one who has been sinned against. Who is God? Well, he's eternal. He, he's completely holy, and, and we are the opposite of that. So when we look at the Bible, we see that nowhere in the Bible and in no way does it teach what some would uh, espouse today of an annihilationistic type of purview or, or idea here. In other words, that maybe you're in hell for a while, but at some point you're going to burn out. At some point, the, the pain's going to be over. The torment's going to be over. That is not what the Bible tells us here. Forever and ever and ever, Satan and the beast and the false prophet, death and Hades, which are ideological concepts of evil, will be there. But also the sinner who's followed that will be in the lake of fire for all of eternity. And that will never burn out. It's an eternal punishment because the sin is, an against, is against an eternal God. So this detailed account here presents, presented in Revelation speaks of this eternality of punishment. You know, one of the main themes of this book involves the depths of human depravity. Apparently, here, here's what I want you to see here. In the millennial kingdom, or this millennial reign, what the Bible refers to as a thousand years, this span of time, even though these people who will live under the allegiance of Jesus, outside of the redemption of Jesus, but outside of the influence of Satan, so they're living in the goodness of God, right? They're living under the banner of God's glory. And all that that will bring with them or for them, living on the outside of the kingdom, 
Not a part of it, but partakers of the goodness of the kingdom. So as they're experiencing this for this period of time, it's not enough to change their hearts toward the Lord. Because as soon as Satan gets out, he deceives them, leads them into rebellion as they seek to overthrow God. So what John is teaching us here in this vision is that it doesn't matter how much time sinful humanity is given. Their hearts are wicked and they will quickly turn against God. Give them a billion years, not enough time. Give them a trillion years, not enough time. They will quickly and certainly turn against God. And so eternal punishment is the only thing they deserve because... They're getting what they desire, and that is they've been chasing after the enemy, and he has been eternally punished. Therefore, it's just natural that they would receive the same punishment as well. Number three, believers are, are rewarded with the privilege of reigning with Christ. I'm just going to briefly say a couple things here. What we see here is that it really does matter how we live in this life. We need to understand that. It's not that we're wanting to build this big mansion in heaven and have this stack of crowns or however we want to talk about it, but it really does matter how we live in this life, how much we really personify and exemplify the Lord Jesus in our lives. Because here's what one, of, one of the things that's happening here. As we're living for the Lord Jesus, we will be rewarded for that. He will give us opportunities. The things that we can be trusted with, we will be given more responsibility. So I don't know what kind of kingdom you're going to, what size of the kingdom you're going to rule in heaven, but it will be, I believe, in, in, in proportion to how faithful you were here. Right? So if you'd like to be able to bring more glory to God in heaven by reigning over more things and stewarding more things and be faithful here. But ultimately it comes back to bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. We rule and reign with him as his regent, as his image bearer. It's moving us back to where Eden was. Adam and Eve were to steward and rule, to have dominion over God's creation as his regent, as his image bearer. And that will, that will be what we do and um, in the kingdom of God, in uh, the millennial reign, and then what transpires after that. So then let's move into this final uh, reality. The coming of the millennium calls for readiness. I told you in the beginning that, that this is one of those main things that we're seeing throughout the revelation, is that there's a, an appeal to be ready. You know, as way of a warning, John here informs us that the ones who will be cast into the lake of fire are going to be the devil, the beast, the false prophet, and those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. And so as we think about that, we need to know and be certain that judgment is a reality. Judgment is a reality that everyone will face. It's going to happen in the not-so-distant future. And it, think about it. Who cares if it's two or 3,000 more years until that judgment comes? You've got one life to live, and it's pretty short. And so whatever uh, span of time there will be between now and when that final judgment happens or that millennial kingdom starts and we're beginning to be rewarded, you have one life to live, and that's today. And so we need to understand that there is a coming of the kingdom, and we must be ready. There will be no parole for those who are in hell, for those who are in the lake of fire. You will not get out because of good behavior. There's no gonna, not going to be an end or a sensa- cessation of the punishment. So it's imperative that we're ready when Jesus returns. How do we prepare for the millennium? First of all, you've got to be in relationship 
with Jesus. You turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior. You recognize the deception of Satan and the truth of Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said in John 10, 10, where he told us that the thief, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He may look like the things he's whispering, whispering in your ear are the best thing life could give you, but it's nothing to, but to deceive you, to steal from you, and to destroy you. That's what he wants to do. Even in this judgment series that we're reading here, we see that the ones who are worshiping him, following his demons, are the ones that they are mowing down and slain by the thousands. He doesn't care about your life. But he says there in John 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, some translation says. Have it abundantly, another translation says. Recognize we need Jesus and pursue him. That's the gospel, right? You know, the good news of the gospel is that God loves you, God created you, God wants to be in a relationship with you. We read here in Revelation how all of that is culminating in this return. The bad news of the gospel is that you are a sinner. And every one of us, apart from the Lord Jesus, we deserve a devil's hell and we deserve the lake of fire. The best news is that none of us have to experience that because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever would believe in him, faith into him, turn from their sins, should not, would not perish, cannot perish, but instead have everlasting life. Many of us in this room, many of us online of watching this morning, you've come to that place in your life where you've faith into Jesus, you've turned from your sins. Some have not. The big question in light of all that we've looked at this morning is what in the world would hold you back? Not to scare you into heaven, right? I don't believe you can be scared into heaven. I think the fear of the judgment coming can get you to think about it, but faith gets you into heaven. Faithing into Jesus, realizing that he is your God, he is your Lord, he is worthy of your allegiance, and you want to give that to him. The best news is, is that you place your faith in Jesus, he will change your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a great God. We thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that you have might beyond comprehension, that the devil is no match for you. Lord, at the end time, that old dragon who personifies himself as something big and powerful and, and, and majestic and, and just a, a, a dominator, you will come down and with an angel, not even yourself, with one of your angels, he will be picked up by the back of the neck and cast aside. God, we thank you for that pray this morning that we would be emboldened in our faith as believers to live with hot hearts for you. In light of what's coming, in light of our victorious King, in light of the kingdom that we are a part of today and will forever be a part of. God, I pray that it would spur us on to holiness in our lives. Love for you, love for others. Father, in the world in which we live, which is so corrupted and so divided and, and, and so pitted against itself, I pray that you would help us to be the love of Jesus, the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. Living out your kingdom today so that others will experience it tomorrow. Father, I pray for those sitting in this room, watching this online, those who will watch at a later time never place faith in Jesus. God, there's no greater need for them. As we move into a time of response, Father, draw them to faith in Jesus. Help them to see their wickedness, to turn from that sin, forsake it. God, it's so simple. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a confession of this, uh, from the mouth. It's a belief in our spirits. 
belief and a confidence in the Lord Jesus and the power of his resurrection. So Lord, I pray that you would move us to where we need to be and where you want us this morning. As we move into this time of invitation, as we stand and sing in just a moment, God, may our hearts be sensitive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. If you're watching online or even here in the room, God is touching your heart and leading you to make a decision of some sort, whatever that may be. I I believe it's important that you share that with somebody. I personally would love to be able to pray with you and encourage you. Our elders, our small group leaders would love to do that as well. So if you would, reach out to us very soon. We're going to get to a point where we're going to have come forward invitations. I can promise you that. Uh, But still right now, we're going to do it this electronic way. And So reach out to us. If you don't have a cell phone or anything, you just hang around after the service and you can chat with me. But uh, let's do business with the Lord as we sing and respond to Him. Amen.